Hello, friends. Welcome to the Thicket and Thistle podcast, a roundtable discussion of our favorite aspects of movie musicals. This week, let your heart lead the way down the romantic back alleys of Belle Epoque Paris to everyone's favorite sexy windmill, the Moulin Rouge. This 2001 Baz Luhrmann extravaganza is not just a visual and musical feast, but a celebration of love's glory and tragedy for all time. Are you ready to get this road on the show? Let's road it! Yeah, man. Let's road it! Ooh, did you hear that out there? (laughs) Got a motorcycle gang just passed by. We're excited. Just serendipitous time. Yeah, thank you, universe. Synchronicity, some would say. Mm, <laughs> that's rude. It. Yeah. I've uh, I've been on week ten of the artist's way for like two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Jules. We're the same person because as am I. <laughs> I I number. I, every time I do my morning pages, which I do do almost every day, but I number them every time. And I'm like, I'm on day like 168 or something. And I'm like still in week 10. It's supposed to be like oh, a 90 day course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're live on All YouTube. Right? All right. Okay. okay. Hello, everybody. All you creatures of the underworld. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Thicket and Thistle podcast. Today we're talking about one of my personal all-time favorite movies, Moulin Rouge. Oh, I love it so much. How are all of you guys doing with this Spectacular, movie? spectacular, Jules. Oh, took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> so we were given two weeks to watch this movie, and I probably watched it five times. Ugh. I kid you not. I love this movie. (laughs) I love this movie so much. Fun fact, I drank an entire bottle of wine by myself while I was watching this and then threw up. (laughs) I was hoping that you were about to say a full bottle of absinthe. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I wish. No, I was just alone drinking wine and kind of lost. Anyway, so... Let's start by uh, talking about everyone's experiences with this movie. Like, what, what's your history? Any first timers? I feel like this was the first time for me. I think I watched this long time ago and didn't care for it. And it was nothing like I remember. So mm. a lot of this was I felt like it was uh, watching it with fresh eyes. Like I virgin, have seen it before. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, has anyone not seen it before? I don't think so. No, 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 we've all seen it. I mean, my first experience with this, I think was just like many horny theater parties of just this being the movie <laughs> that everybody's watching while we're all secretly heavy petting each other, right? Like Moulin Rouge <laughs> is that yes. movie in we're high school. I'm sorry, right guys. Now, just so people know, we're <laughs> all is, nodding. We're all shaking our head in agreement. <laughs> That is 100% what this movie is because it is, you know, kind of steamy and sexy, but Mm. also has just some fun musical numbers, guys. (laughs) And some silly editing. It really does. I think, like, when you first see this movie, at least for me, like, the first 10 minutes or whatever, I'm just, like, getting used to these editing and this quick talking and this, like, well, how am I supposed to feel right now? It's a little insane. And then it kind of mellows out. But overall, I mean, this one's great. And, and we'll get into all the reasons why this, to me, a hot take, I'm saying it off the bat here, might be the best jukebox musical ever. That's you my know, opinion. 
I was wondering about that, Sam, because I know you're a major hater of jukebox musicals. And I was Huge like, I what he's going to say about Miller. Yeah. yeah, we'll get into it. But that, that's my experiences. I saw it at a, uh, a theater party and at many of them. And I've watched it privately. I love this movie. It's great. What about you, John? So I was a good Christian girl, as we've already established mm. on this podcast. And I was not allowed to watch Moulin Rouge in my own home. <laughs> uh, so I actually, the first First time I watched Moulin Rouge, I was a freshman in high school. The musical that we did that year was Beauty and the Beast. And so I was like in a the drama room and they were playing Moulin Rouge. And this became like a tradition. Yeah, at call time, we're going to put on Moulin Rouge and that's what's going to get us, you know. All hot and bothered all to hot, perform right. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> well, the thing is, what it really meant was, I didn't know this, there was more to this movie after where the Duke signs the deed. <laughs> Okay. And it wasn't until many years later, AKA two weeks ago, that I've been <laughs> reunited with this musical. And I was like, oh yeah, there is more to this musical. That's kind of how I feel about ending at the first VHS of Titanic, you know? That's where yeah. I like to end that movie. <laughs> Kyle, what about you? Yes, I, uh, I watched this movie in high school several times. I even remember some of it. I think... For me, this is this is ranking really high on my jukebox musical list. I'm not sure whether I like this or the film version of Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia Two. That is, um, I think <laughs> both are movie. very strong. So we'll have to do we'll have to do a Mamma Mia One and Two someday. <laughs> What about you, Lindsay? I think this came out when I was a senior in high school. Uh, at least it made it to video by then. So I didn't see it in the theaters, saw it shortly after it was released on video. And we had like a little group viewing of it. I don't know what you all are talking about, about like these hot high school parties that you used to go to. I, I don't to either, but I think it's because all the boys <laughs> in my theater were ugly. Anyway. <laughs> that doesn't stop theater kids. That yeah, doesn't actually, stop theater kids. I wasn't a real theater kid. Actually, (laughs) kind of one of the qualifying things. We all needed our personalities, okay? Yeah. (laughs) As my friend Chelsea says, you can't fuck a personality. I got some grinder stories to tell you that will change (laughs) your mind. Yikes. Um, So for me, I have a long history with this movie. And let's see, it came out May 16th, 2001, which was just under a month before I turned 13. And I went to see it in the theater with my dad, which was a little weird. And I was a very like emotionally closed off child. (laughs) And it made me so sad that I like couldn't think about it for like a year because I didn't, I felt so uncomfortable by how much it made me feel. Like I couldn't even, I remember being in a store and seeing the soundtrack and like running away because I was afraid it would make me feel something. And then someone gave me the DVD for my 14th birthday and I watched it literally every day that summer. So I truly love Moulin Rouge. I will disagree though about the high school thing. I remember I had, I held this movie so close to my heart that like, I remember we were driving to State Thespian Conference on like a charter bus and they're like, let's put on Moulin Rouge. And then it was all the fucking theater kids just singing along the whole time. And I was so mad because they sucked and this movie doesn't suck. Moving on. How you get the, how you get the juices flowing. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, let's a hormone fueled party. <laughs> Dude, those bus rides too, you guys. So steamy. That was, <laughs> that oh, was yeah. heavy petting alley. Backfire oh, rules. Oh yeah. You had to keep I singing so the people weren't looking at your this, hands. I guess my mom like like chaperoned too many trips, so I just don't know this <laughs> story. You know, like I just feel like I missed high school somewhere. I don't know. No, Thanks, this guys. is how my high school was experienced. This this experience was as well. This describes college for me. What was Sam was describing is I was a late bloomer though. I grew up in the city. You were heavy petting in college? (laughs) No idea. It is late, late bloomer. How dare you? Look, I want to say this, Jules. I agree that this movie does not suck. That is my that is my (laughs) hot take, is that I I'll give it that. It in no ways is it bad, but it is I if I disagree with the group here, it is in no ways like an amazing movie. It is far it is far too uh like the pace is just unrelenting and i found it exhausting it is like Mm. manic at a breakneck pace even through the sad stuff the editing (laughs) the editing alone is like obscene it is just impossible like if you were a cinematographer i think you would just have hated the way this is edited because there is no time spent on any shots i think with the exception of like a virgin there are some longer shots and there's actually some <laughs> dancing that goes on in there i was actually re-watching this thinking you know this is what the inside of my head looks like and maybe mm-hmm. that's why i love this movie it's very chaotic in there that- but i was i was thinking that during the can can scene i was noticing like i think literally every beat of music has a different shot they don't even edit like on phrases or on words sometimes it's like in the middle of individual sounds in a word it is it cuts around especially the it. first 30 minutes it's chaos i don't i'm not saying it's bad it is just it it, it i had to watch this in two parts because the first hour just it, it, it was exhausting. <laughs> so stressful but i mean to be fair i do think that that was a tactic to like make you feel a certain way because oh, i yeah. think it's supposed to feel very manic and sort of like stressful and like make you feel like you're in this crazy place. Yeah, it's like a fever accident. dream. I don't know if it's on purpose yeah. though. I feel like Baz Luhrmann like had too much to say with this movie and just like wanted, was just trying to get all of it out. I have a, a thought to add here. So I read um, Anna Christelle Gamboa's master's thesis about Moulin Rouge, which is 83 pages long. Wow. And oh. this is a quote that I want to... <laughs> from there that addresses this topic. Baz Luhrmann claims in an interview to have been seeking to create a real artificiality rather than an artificial reality. Uh, He says that the stories from, it's called the the Red Curtain Trilogy, the first three kind of major Baz Luhrmann films, including Romeo plus Juliet. I don't know if you guys have seen that as well. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about it. It shares a lot kind of stylistically with Moulin Rouge. the the stories in this kind of trilogy are familiar to us in a certain way and so it seems like Baz Luhrmann had to like reach for some I guess unusual film techniques Mm. or editing techniques or something to create uh I don't know like a like a distance from the source material that we're all very familiar with like this type of love story is something that felt very like known to me or instinctive somehow Mm -hmm. and so it's this kind of like decorative style on top of that helped to put it into a realm that felt very fresh 
to quote Oscar Wilde, it's dealing with a very serious subject matter in a very silly way so that you can deal with it. Mm, I yeah. love that. I love that opening, the opening uh, where we zoom through town and we stop and we look at the priest and he's like, mm-hmm. this den of sin or whatever he says. <laughs> and then we zoom away and then we see prostitutes and we're like, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is a lot. Uh, yeah it feels more like a music video at times than it does a movie musical mm. and plus we're listening to pop music all the time yeah i, like that yeah, that's true. I think that's why this is my favorite jukebox musical and i think the best is because it's just music it's just anything mm-hmm. anything that they need for it to work and at times even combining two songs or two or three songs to make their point and it's so much better for me than like doing a specific artist or even a specific artist's album and then trying to derive this narrative from it this one totally. just doesn't feel like it's in conflict with the narrative and the songs at all yeah yeah they actually you know? have songs that serve the story right and it helps that like a lot of this like kind of, some of it takes place on a stage you know so some of them are kind of being performed within the world and you can get away with that a little easier but they do just a great job of doing things from all kinds of songs there's a nirvana song in this you know mm-hmm. like there's like it's my favorite it, it, it's really cool and it, it they just do a really good job with that and, and i think the artsy direction obviously helps with that too yeah as opposed to like across the universe which is i i think a, a pretty good one i don't know i'll have to rewatch it for this we'll have to do that one at some point oh, but i love across the universe <laughs> and it, it feels similar i think in some ways we'll have to see we should do a comparison but this one just has more flexibility and i, I just mm-hmm. feel like nothing from the plot feels shoot horned in with the songs which i love totally yeah nobody has to like make any weird references to make the titles of the songs work like that to me is what gets me the most in jukebox musicals oh yeah, like, yeah. that's a bummer it's and, true <laughs> and across the universe when they were like hey she came in through the bathroom window you're like come on <laughs> yes. guys Big oh, on, guys. Yeah, we're like they have to type. They have to give the lead character in Jagged Little Pill her name is Mary Jane, so that later we can sing the song. What's the matter, Mary Jane? Are you happy? Like, ugh, yeah. And and the character who comes in through the bathroom window and across the universe is named Prudence. Right. Yes. Exactly. Prudence. Every every character in that movie is named after a Beatles song. There's Which a is fun. Oh. I but I love that stuff. Yeah, it's Jude, it's Max, it's Jojo. It does it, but in this it, it doesn't take me out. It like when that happens, if it takes me out of it, I'm like, Ugh. I guess it doesn't really take me out of it too much in, across the universe. But what's up, Josh? On this note, I as a person who grew up in the 80s and 90s listening to pop music like all of these things speak to me when you hear phrases it's just like I'm the right uh, age to have for this musical to like speak to my experience I wonder though if you are an artist who your entire song or your songwriter all that's being sampled is like one line that in a song context sort of can live on its own if it's crammed into a song with 15 other lyrics does that like cheapen the what they're doing in any way or does it annoy you you mean in like the medley sense yeah i see i love that about this movie like i love the use of the nirvana song in the middle of the can can song i think that's so cool personally it's i i feel like in this movie it's done in such a way as to be kind of like highly respectful i feel like of all the music that they chose Mm -hmm. like it all makes sense and it doesn't feel like too much of it is used just because like this was a hit you know what i mean it's not like just pumping the numbers mm-hmm. it's not yeah, paint by so, numbers type of score it, it is all very felt was my and so much that it. comes from christian is like the movie points to like this is poetry it's like the most beautiful thing he could mm-hmm. say to her at the time so uh, i feel like you get away with it there um i feel like 
And I, f- I think John and I disagree on this, but I saw the Broadway musical last year. I was and... wondering how long we were going to get into this before talking well, about the Broadway see, musical. Because <laughs> my point is because in the Broadway musical, they updated so much of the music to just put some of the most popular songs of the last 10 years in and it it really has more of a feeling of like shoehorning in popular songs you know like they like shove in firework by Katy perry that doesn't fit but you know it was super popular in the last 10 years and the what i love about this movie is it just takes some of the greatest love songs of the last 50, 100 years, and they really serve the story. And that's that was my biggest problem with the Broadway musical, but... Wait, but there were a lot of fireworks in the movie, so do you think maybe that's what they were referring to when they said <laughs> in the Broadway? Like, it was- her Thank thing, you. she's like standing alone in her dressing room like, oh, I'm a whore, and sings firework. It's like not... I had a First lot of off, feelings about that show. Thank you for agreeing with me, Lindsay. Um, I, I will keep this brief. I think that <laughs> the movie Moulin Rouge has about 98% enough songs in it and the Broadway musical just shoved like 200 more in. And it is really annoying. I hate going to jukebox musicals with crowds of people. And anytime a familiar song comes up, the whole crowd goes, oh, and they clap a little bit. And it makes me so angry. And I will say that when I saw this, I saw the Boston production Mm -hmm. the last weekend before it ended. And it was really annoying in Elephant Love Medley because they added in literally like 15 or 20 more song references. And And every single one, people were cheering and I'm like yeah and the song is like perfect and long enough as it is the musical production value itself however great choreography amazing amazing. the sets (laughs) wonderful the acting uh, what would you go to Moulin Rouge for Kyle what were you gonna say I was gonna say that don't you guys feel like it's a pretty deliberate choice to not exactly pander but to use things that are recognizable to provoke that sort of cheering reaction from the audience. Totally, which is why I I didn't like like that musical. (laughs) In in this thing I'm reading, it's talking about how Bosleman visited India at one point and watched a movie in a crowd of like a couple thousand people. And it was like a, you know, three hour Bollywood thing. So it had a lot of comedy, it had a lot of tragedy. It was just, you know, very colorful and just delighted this crowd. And the crowd was very engaged. It was very like audience engaging type of movie. It appears that Moulin Rouge is kind of Bosleman's attempt to do a, a slightly Bollywood-flavored movie. Mm. And there's sort of that acknowledgement during the movie when they go, they're doing the, like, play with the Maharaja and all of that. Like, this is all sort of honoring that Bollywood inheritance a little bit. Mm. But don't you feel like the musical is just sort of trying to do that same thing, but a little more? I had not ever thought of this as an American Bollywood movie. Mm. But that really is what it is. It's like half music video. Somebody said it earlier. And it's like, it's super funny. And then it takes a moment to get really Mm -hmm. sad and serious. And uh, that just like really matches to me what uh, what a Bollywood movie is. Of course, it's Americanized in a lot of ways. Our pop music and it's like under... three hours but like it, it definitely is yeah i'd never thought of that before that's a really that's a really interesting read on the movie yeah big colorful dance scenes like the oh it i that's that my mind has been blown totally it reminds me the color of this reminds me of the early like technicolor movies where like it's like suddenly they realize they could use color movies and that's like 
all they did. They just <laughs> shoved it in your face because there's, it's just, it's excessive. It is the color and uh, it's just excessive. Excessive in the excessive best is way. the right word for this movie. It's excessive in every way. Um, yeah. I found this little bit of trivia that's sort of fun. You know, when the Duke gives Satine that gorgeous diamond studded necklace. Apparently that was made of real diamonds and it was valued at $3 million. It had over a thousand diamonds in it. And they had wow. to like, at great expense, build like a stunt double version of it. For when, for it when he like, like rips it off her? Or <laughs> off of her neck, yeah. Yeah, if, uh, if you're out there listening, go Google a photo of this necklace because it is amazing. It's it so is so glorious. It's fantastic. So, uh, should we just go through this movie a little bit? Let's start from the very beginning. Something I love. <laughs> they have the conductor conducting the opening production companies, which I love so much. I feel like it really brings you into this, like, theatrical world. Like, it tells you right away, like, this isn't a normal movie. This is, like gonna be a spectacle yeah it sets up the ridiculousness of it all it's like you're here seeing a performance yeah. watch this guy perform for a bit <laughs> totally i have a question i i was thinking about this this week after watching it and i wonder what you guys think do you think it's more or less effective that you find out satine dies at the very beginning i was thinking I... about it because it's so heartbreaking when she does die josh I want to call out something Kyle said earlier, which is that this is sort of like a recycling of things that are very familiar. Mm. And I read like Roger Ebert's review of this today. And something he said is that it's like a movie that you can drop in at any time and know who's good, who's bad, who's in love, what's going on. And I think that that is sort of the idea here is that you, there is, there are almost no secrets. It's entirely about the theatricality of it. Mm. I think that one of the, the greatest things about this movie is like anything that you tell me at the very beginning, I'm going to forget. And I will say that every time I watch this movie, still to this day, I always forget that she's going to die. I'm like, they're about to win. Mm. They're going to win. This is wonderful. Yeah, it's like I don't we, remember it ending this way. <laughs> we know in Romeo and Juliet what happens and how that how sad that is, but like you can rewatch any number of stories and like still like isn't the the measure of effectiveness like do you believe it when it's happening even though you mm. know it's it's already mm -hmm. going to happen? True. Yeah. I love that. Moral of the story is Josh loves Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm a fan of his Romeo plus Juliet movie because oh, guess what? It's like 90 minutes, yeah. streamlined. It's got really great acting. I don't yeah. have to go to a theater and watch a four-hour performance of people in an archaic language. With yeah, but they um, the uses swords. The, <laughs> it uses the original that's, language, so that's if you're your calling archaic, it's still the same. Um, yeah, it is my problem. Not, he's made a career of like building movies on anachronisms. Like that is that are Brilliant. those that's that's this movie. That's Romeo plus Juliet. Like that's his thing. I don't you know. Speaking of Romeo plus Juliet, the Come What May from this show was originally mm. written for Romeo plus Juliet, and as really? what like a theme song or a, um, they were going to sing it. I just know that it was like, that was the one or, or like one of the very few original songs. And it was like, oh, that one's like what they wrote so that they could be up for best original song. But then it, it was like, they couldn't put it into the, uh, to be judged because it was originally written for Romeo plus Juliet. No, it was nominated. I was actually reading. Yeah, I was reading about this today because I have something else to share. 
So it was nominated. It's the only original song in the movie. And it was nominated for best original song. And it lost to this song. (laughs) I'm just going to play you a clip. This is Until by Sting from Kate and Leopold. And everything seems to be clear Not a solitary thing do I fear Except when this moment comes near the dancing's end Yeah, that's what won best original song over Come What May. And I travesty. said that's travesty. Yeah. A bit of clarification. Uh, so it was nominated for the Golden Globe best original song, but it was ineligible for the Academy Awards. Oh, I thought mm. I read this today. Which leads to the question, what's better, an Academy Award or a Golden Globe? <laughs> what do you think, Sam? I know you really care about um, award shows. Yeah, well, it's just it just has to do with the the spectacularity of it all, you know? Um, mm. uh, an award means a lot, you guys, if you think about it. You know, yeah, you, know it what, just... you know what art should be is competitive. Exactly. <laughs> That's what it was made to do. I mean, everyone makes a movie thinking, will a handful of white old men like this movie enough to give me a piece of gold? <laughs> or a yacht? All right. That's a hilarious Let's move description. On. Of the, of the Academy Awards. So moving on, it is a bra. We, it's a gold we, naked man. Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm, st- I'm still on this. <laughs> We're talking about Moulin Rouge. So we meet all these crazy characters. I think Toulouse Lautrec is one of the most delightful characters in cinema, played by our our love, everyone's love, John Leguizamo. We gotta talk also- about this. Oh, come on, this guy, someone. Gave him the thumbs up to play a dwarf with a lateral lisp and soft R's. He gave him two speech impediments. It's it is a lot. I think like, it's what? supposed to be an accent that isn't that good. He was originally supposed to play the narcoleptic Argentinian. Really? And also then, a great character. But like, then he did five voices and the director's like, let's change it. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the Super Mario movie from 1993. I don't know if anyone out there in podcast world has ever seen this movie. It is... Oh, it's Jim. Um, he also plays Tybalt in the aforementioned Romeo plus Juliet, and it's mm-hmm. fantastic in that what movie. What a career. Oh, such a good actor. Yeah. I will say, all your issues aside, Josh, I think it, issues. Is, I'm it just, is a it, lovely performance. Though. It encapsulates he, the, the movie for me. It is like, let's turn the volume up, knob up to 10 on everything, and then like take all the spaces out. You know, Just we'll put it all in there. <laughs> it feels like this character is kind of the like heart and soul of everyone around the theater essentially yes. you know like he totally. believes in their love well you know? and the whole theme of the movie the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return is his line as the magical sitar who cannot tell a lie <laughs> only speak the truth <laughs> Another fun fact is the character Audrey, who is the original writer that Christian replaces, who is only in one scene in a delightful blue bob, is played by David Wenham, who plays Faramir in my other favorite movies, Lord of the Rings. Wow. That's just a fun fun fact for Jules, because those are my two favorite movies. Anyway, then we move on. We see Kylie Minogue as a fairy. Love in this. The, in the very first TikTok video ever recorded, I want to say, <laughs> if you rewatch that 30 seconds, you're like, this is a TikTok video. 
I love that it takes the sound of music song and makes it kind of like sexy and scary also. Yeah. <laughs> Quickly, you know how the Green Fairy screams like as mm -hmm. we're kind of like zooming in really fast and scary? That is actually Ozzy Osbourne screaming. Oh, that's right. At the end of Kylie Minogue's Oh, is that there. why yeah. she's, is that why it, he's credited as a green fairy? I was like, I've seen this mm -hmm. a lot of times and I've never seen Ozzy Osbourne as a green fairy. <laughs> it's an Ozzy scream, Yeah, when, his, when her eyes sweet. turn red. Yes. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> wow. And then, and then we move on to the, one of the most um, formative scenes, maybe for me ever, of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friends. Mm. It just, the, it, this was like from 12 years old, this is what I wanted to be. Is this what your costume at when my, you were 18? My Halloween costume, yes. Mm -hmm. I, I have a mind blow for you guys. Ooh, I hope you're ready for this. Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend uh, in Moulin Rouge is, is kind of a mashup. Uh, mm -hmm. It's Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend mixed with Material Girl yeah. by Madonna. And so in the movie, there's a bunch of like guys in tuxes with gifts running mm -hmm. around trying to give them to Satine. Uh, and that is like this reference to the Material Girl video from 1985. But on top of that, the Material Girl music video from 1985 is actually referencing the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 1953 <laughs> starring Marilyn Monroe, where she sings Diamonds Are a Girl's Oh Best my Friend. God. And it brings it all around. Baz, you're a genius. And it totally suits the story. It lays the groundwork for later plot points. Like it's Ugh. all coming together in this so sequence. Good. This is this is really well done, in my opinion. In the middle of this, we also get one of my favorite lines that Nicole Kidman says: "A real actress." When she, when they're in the uh, the dress circle underneath, and Ziggler <laughs> yeah. goes, "And then," and she goes, "A real actress." Which I love for two reasons. One, because anytime someone is listing off things and like, oh, and I can't remember what's next. And then I always interrupt them with a real actress and nobody gets it, <laughs> but I keep saying it. And also Nicole Kidman broke her ribs during rehearsal and they filmed that. Her, she's in a wheelchair in like a, a cast. And she- <laughs> Really? And that's the one, like anytime when they're ducking under the dresses, that entire thing, she's uh, uh, in a wheelchair. Jeez. Wow. I love her. <laughs> she's just one of my favorite actresses of all time. I think she's so delightful. <laughs> then we go into The Elephant, which has been Juliana Wheeler's design aesthetic since 2001. <laughs> oh my God, it is. <laughs> I have just recently started getting rid of all the red and gold that's in my room. <laughs> and I'll. this is a hot take, but I prefer this version of your song to the original. I think him singing it is so beautiful. I love the way it starts. She's so funny too. She's like when she's rolling around on the ground and she's got the like fur thing wrapped around her. Yeah, this is the first time that the the songs, uh, I feel like the music really fits for me. Like it's a, mm -hmm. it, it, it's also one of the first times we hear like a com almost a complete song. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I mean, it's such good lyrics. Like it's on, perfect. Elton, Elton John. And they dance on the clouds around the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> It's magical. This is a song for me today that uh, I think this maybe this happens to other people noticing to pop music. Sometimes I don't understand all of the lyrics. And this is the first time I think I really listened to the Selton John song and heard all the lyrics. Mm. Um, probably because there was someone singing with intention. I don't know. What Anyone else ever listen to pop songs and 
they're like yes recite all the lyrics now yeah well, no it's just the fact that he like i didn't know that i knew that it was a love song but i didn't know mm-hmm. that he was like literally singing about writing a song and asking if that's okay that's very totally sweet. um and then we kind of we've met the duke but this is our first real in- introduction to the duke and john i know you love the duke <laughs> yeah, i don't want to ruin anything for anyone but my character that i want to play in this movie is the duke <laughs> oh fuck let's spoiler do alert let's do it now uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear what everyone else wants to play in this. But for the longest time, I wanted to play Ziegler. Mm. But then, like, I would say, like, the last, like, the last, like, two years of watching this, I'm like, oh, the part to play is the Duke, who I want to point out, <laughs> when they were writing the script for this, his placeholder name, as in they're like, I don't know, what are we going to call this guy, was Count Von Groovy. <laughs> Count Von Groovy. This character is so masterful, or maybe, I don't know whether it's the writing or the directing or the performance, but there's never been a character that's so, like, dorky and lame and also so creepy and scary. Yeah, it's it's very tastefully done. And I I love the choice that he's, like, a terrible singer and he's got a a weird, creepy (laughs) voice. Like, the only time that he, like, actually sings, I think, is at the end of, like, A Virgin where they harmonize. Oh, it's so good. He just sounds terrible. I think it's it's just a great, great tasteful (sighs) choice. It's so good. Yeah, he, he now, he's actually very handsome. If any, if if you want to IMDB him, listen. Richard Roxburgh. Yeah, giving me like hot daddy vibes. Mm. There's so many actors in this that they put mustaches on and they completely disappear, like he does. Same mm-hmm. with the uh, with James Broadbent. Like you, I do. Mm-hmm. He's almost unrecognizable. Totally. Because his his smile, like in real life, is so big. It's like a horseshoe that like you put a mustache on him and like it. It's so funny how it's great. Uh, I would not have recognized him. And uh, I feel like they always light him in this like really ruddy red color, and they always mm-hmm. are like zooming in really close to his big old face and just yeah. like he's making these and crazy his like blush. Yeah, he's oh, and they use a so fisheye good. lens with him a lot too. I feel right. like mm-hmm. there's so many things that exaggerate his features in this movie that yeah, he's super unrecognizable at first. <laughs> Lindsay, you've got an amazed look on your face. Are you looking at hot zaddy Richard Roxford? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Zane? Damn. Oh, okay, listeners, oh. you have to Google this. No, 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 no. Go on to IMDb, not the Wikipedia page. The Wikipedia page <laughs> is a nice headshot. Go to IMDb. That's the picture that I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, Take let's hit away. it. I mean, what, who would everyone else play? I don't think I have to say because I've been pretty vocal already. I wanted, I've always liked Ziegler. He's sure. the man. You'd be he's great the, as that character. He's the most fun, yeah. That's why I had my top hat on, again, before before we started recording. (laughs) (laughs) Lindsay's showing us more hot pictures. Everything's going so well. (laughs) I love that line. (laughs) I love it so much. He's great. Kyle, what about you? Uh, I I felt a particular draw towards the conductor, the bald conductor with the scarf. Of course. I don't know why, but you mentioned the very beginning of the movie when they have that big orchestral theme and then Mm -hmm. there's like the little silhouette of the person conducting it. I feel like I used to do that as a kid, you know, like <laughs> wave my arms around and get like really into the orchestral theme of 20th Century Fox or whatever. Hell yeah. But anyway, his like arc throughout this mm. whole movie, I'm like, I would do that for sure. Well, one of my favorite lines of him that I think is a really good Kyle line is when they're brainstorming of uh, what to say about the hills 
And his pitch for the line is, the hills are vital in toning the descant. <laughs> Which is the most Kyle thing to say, you know? Yeah, that's 100% true. <laughs> Josh, what about you? Uh, I mean, I'm a... I'm a Christian type, but that's not, it would not be that interesting to me. I think the, it'd be fun to sing. There's a lot of great music, but I find the love story kind of uninspiring in this. I find all of the theater characters very exciting. I think John Leguizamo's character would just be, uh, it Mm -hmm. it would be a lot of fun to be real naughty with all of the things he does there. Uh, I feel like you would be a really good Duke as well. Can I, can I just throw that out there? I mean, it would be fun. John already said it. I don't want to, I don't want to. No, so in the, in the, in the movie, he's played as this like sinister, like weird, creepy guy. In the Broadway version, oh yeah, he's like, hot as hell. He's this like opera man who's like super rich. Yeah. And you're like, girl, why is this even a? Question? Yeah, I was like, who would go for this little bitch, Aaron Tveit? When you have, well, that they make guy. him. I get it. You make you make a really good looking guy bad. It's like even more icky. People just oh, love, love to it. hate it. it it's it's, it's a good choice. Yeah, that would be super fun, and I, I feel like I uh, would have a ton of. I love playing bad guys. It's so much fun. Mm. Yeah. Lindsay, what about you? Well, you pose an interesting question because we picked another movie with one female lead. So uh, (laughs) the other female in this group, I guess I could play a day player, but it doesn't fucking interest me. So I would want to be like in the editing room because that's where the artistic stuff happens. So fuck you guys. I don't even want to be in front of the camera. Wow. Hell yeah. Yeah, in the editing room, Ooh. also on the uh, legal team trying to get all the rights for these, this music. That they <laughs> so fun. Reportedly took them about two years to secure all the rights. I have to say, on the editing note, can you, I mean, can you imagine dealing with this guy's notes? Like, I'm sorry, go back a frame. Uh, cut one more frame. You're like, okay, well, there's just Here's one. Here's the thing, though. There's just one I frame edit here like now. that, and I think I would have been really good on this movie. So, yeah. I mean, I'm saying it in all seriousness. That's where Absolutely. I would have enjoyed the work. Yeah. Uh, Oh wow! So then we uh, we gotta just touch on the elephant love medley because it made it gave me chills and it made me cry and I've seen this movie probably like seventy five times <laughs> when he jumps up and sings, "Love lifts us up where we belong." Oh my god! It sickens me with happiness. <laughs> when we were talking earlier about really any song that fits will fit, this <laughs> love medley ends with "We could be heroes forever and ever." I love it. There's That's a lot it. of David Bowie in this <laughs> There's several David Bowie songs. I can't pinpoint why that works, but it, I couldn't help but feel, feel like it totally worked. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is around the time when we encounter the sort of main point of conflict between Satine and Christian, which is that Christian is just like just moving to Williamsburg <laughs> from his like trust fund family. You know what I mean? Like he can so leave tedious. at any point. He is a writer who has not written anything. Yeah, and like I'm just like he's such a tourist. It reminds and... me of Cabaret. It's like just you're like what mm-hmm. you're, what are you doing? Yeah. It, so that to me was kind of interesting that this actually does get brought up in Satine is like the difference between you and me is that like you can leave anytime and you know you keep saying that like money is not important but like i need to eat so yeah so in this in this master's thesis um <laughs> there's a description of Baz Luhrmann's themes about love and sort of topics that get brought up over and over again and one of those is that like the main characters are in conflict about loving each other because they come from different backgrounds 
and that the rules of each sort of class or culture lead to breakdowns or destruction or disruption between mm. them. And I feel like it's laid out so clear and so good in this movie. There was like a couple minutes where I was having trouble like feeling bad for Christian, but I kind of ended up getting over it. I don't, I can't really explain it, but after a while I was like, it's you, you know, and you McGregor's performance. Together. It's so earnest. It's so like real. Yeah. Like he's it's never beautiful. been in love before, right? The thing that wrapped me the most this last few times I watched it was watching him process grief once Satine mm. dies. Mm-hmm. Because at the very beginning, like while she's dying, you're like, whoa, Ewan, landed on thick, bro. Like we got, hold on, this is a marathon, not a sprint. But then <laughs> at the end, when he like realizes that she's actually gone and he just lets it out, mm-hmm. that to me is like, why am I crying? I knew she was going to die. Exactly. I love it. He's I, so good. He's so good. He's so good. He really, I love, he really commits to crying in movies, which I admire because he does the same thing in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace when Qui-Gon Jinn dies. He really like wails over that body. And I was always like, what a man to like commit so hard to wailing. And then he does it in this and it just pierces your heart. Yeah, he's uninhibited too. I think movie musicals are also tough because close-up shots of people singing are not pretty. And he, I think in this Mm -hmm. movie especially, they use that because he just doesn't, it's like uh, he's unfazed by. Totally. Um, he's the, very the relaxed while he's there. singing, yeah. you know? His his face is very beautiful while he's singing, you know, just like mm. big old open mouth and all that. Like, <sighs> I can understand that being a difficult sell for, for some people, especially if you're not as comfortable with singing. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's a good singer too. Totally. Yeah, he's a stage actor originally, right? Like. This is in his wheelhouse. I'm not sure. I know I that, I read so, that this is his first like singing gig. Yeah, oh, really? he was like, wait, we're all having to sing our own songs? That's not how they did it in Singing in the Rain. <laughs> and and then like he, he talked in one of the interviews, like after he heard Nicole Kidman singing, he was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to be, you know, well, I guess this was before Russell Crowe's Javert, but. Oh, wow. is she bad? Nobody is she a bad singer that. in real life? No, she's good. Oh. She like nailed it. And it was like, real? oh. Wait, I'm sorry, Nicole Kidman? Am I, am I? Cool. I'm going to sit on the opposite side of this. I think she's an impressive (laughs) singer. And I thought he was really amazing. And the thing is, there were other actual musical theater, like uh, what, Kyle, what did we look up? It was like Jake Gallagher. What's his name? Gallagher is a real person. Uh, Yeah, they they were considering several other people for that role. Jake Gyllenhaal. No, Gyllenhaal was (laughs) up for it. (laughs) What? He was so young then. Yes, I know, they but considered the thing Jake Gyllenhaal like were... and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for that role as well. Oh, interesting. Could he sing? Too. I don't know. I do but... agree with you, Lindsay. I think she has a pretty voice. I would, I'm not blown away by it. I think he has like a gorgeous voice. And Does it's this raw movie... and beautiful. And it's actually good. Does this movie predate any like significant auto-tuning software that's now used in all of pop music and, and so music, movie musicals. Does it predate it? No, it it existed during this movie, but it's probably used. The, to the be singers are good enough that it can be mm-hmm. applied kind of gently. Like it's not T Pain levels of auto tune by any means. <laughs> Nothing is T Pain. No, no, I've I've seen this software used on even amazing singers, and it's it it, it works really well in small doses. I think I just. This was one of the first instances of of them record, like they were recorded in the studio, but they would also sing it live mm-hmm. while they were filming and they would match them. So it wasn't a strict like lip sync. It was, I, it's, hard to de- it's hard to describe. I remember reading that about the producers that they actually recorded on set 
and she got to choose then in the edit, like, do I use the pre-recorded version or the one that they did on set? And you can actually tell when you watch that a mm. bunch of like Nathan Lane's scenes are recorded in the room because you can sort of hear the the room. Just yeah. like there's a siren in the background right now. I'm going on mute. <laughs> um, in, with respect to that, I, I would say the thing that makes it work so well is the orchestrations mm. to a large degree. Because the vocals are set against such a like lush background, it's way different than if they were set against like a single acoustic guitar or something. Like the, the amount of autotune that you can apply is a lot more generous when you have like a bunch of strings in the background and a bunch of percussion and it's like, you know, mm. low brass and whatever. You can just sort of like slip the voice into that mix and make it blend really nice. And so I just want to say these people's names because they don't get appreciated enough. But there's there's basically three arranger slash composer people that help to make all this music fit together so well. Like a big matchup of the can-can and smells like teen spirit, which thank God that this person exists who can do that. Uh, <laughs> we've got Marius DeVries, music director, Matt Dunkley, Chris Elliott, and one other person, Steve Sharples in post, who, who helped out with a lot mm, of that. Sharples. So, thank you to name. those guys. Great work. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening to our Thicken and Thistle podcast. <laughs> we kind of talked about earlier, but I want to dig in a bit more, is Like a Virgin. I, I was afraid that watching it this time, I'm like, oh no, we live in a bit more of like a woke culture. And like, is this going to be like offensive or make me feel it's weird? Not. And to me, it was the, it's the funniest song in the whole freaking movie. It's the variety number. It's so fun. And I would say this is the most like classic musical theater feeling song. Yeah, it's got the most choreography and the most like, yeah. I was was trying to think, put Coke on the floor, not cocaine, Coca-Cola on the floor. of the set so that all the dancing that they were doing because they were sliding around on those (laughs) and so they put coca-cola out uh, so to make it sticker stickier so they could dance better this is what i love the character the duke so much is because he takes this like such extremeness of like i don't care what the audiences are going to think about me i'm going to make this choice that he is a disgusting weird (laughs) psycho he's going to you know like he has he has that grossness in him that we then see later when he finally totally. gets her alone and it's like oh god this is awful josh it's I like think- funny until it's scary <laughs> yeah i think in this it's so restrained because a lot of his lines in the song when he's sharing when he's sharing lyrics are just they're like whispered almost and that like it is so much scarier and creepy <laughs> she's than so the- fine and she's mine. Ugh. Yes. He's got that weird, and the weird the voice. little like booby jello molds don't help, you know. Oh. God. I um. do remember those stick out in my memory from high school. It's like the one of two things I think I remember from the movie was like, oh yeah, there's jello boob. I knew that was in there. I could Sam and John. I can definitely see you killing this song. That would be fun. The the reason I think that I also love the character of the Duke so much is because of the meltdown that he has. At, at the rehearsal and he, we get a little glimpse of it when he does that you're so fine and you're mine because later he does this beautiful thing where he's like why would he choose her over the maharaja and does this like pause circle thing that we see him do in this and it's just so good it's oh i love it i, I love don't it so like this ending change it change the ending and that then, was gonna be my whole scene and gonna, then I of course that leads that to in my opinion the greatest scene in the movie which is roxanne so oh. my question about this earlier though was how much does this fit because john you were saying like i don't like anything that takes me out of the 
story mm -hmm. that seems shoehorned in. And this is my question is, did this hit you like this? Because I agree. I think this is one of the greatest like songs in the musical, but also how does it really fit? And does it take you out of the story? I will agree with that sentiment, but don't bother me. <laughs> it would be different if her name was Roxanne. Kyle, what do you think? Yeah, it feels like the reference is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, mm -hmm. but it also feels like they transform this song so much. Oh. that it kind of fits into the world really nicely. Mm. And the other thing I wanted to say is it, it didn't take me out of the story because it's exploring this aspect of love that is kind of painful. Mm -hmm. And up to this point, all of our explorations of love have been the kind of like exuberant, really positive, kind of bubbly, fluffy aspects of love. Yeah. And exploring something like jealousy, it starts to get really like complex and a bit dark. And I feel like putting it down the octave and putting it in this really like rough vocal place helps to ground not only in the song and style of the song, but it helps to ground our, our kind of like compass of love in this story. Because we get a sense of Christian's jealousy as well as the Duke's jealousy. Mm -hmm. And we sort of also get the sense of like Satine being kind of like in between these two forces and like what's her role in all of this? And she gets kind of like acted by a sort of member of the company in a weird way. And so the fact that her name, that Satine's name is not Roxanne doesn't bother me because there's almost like a play within the play, jealousy exploration going on with this song. Yeah, let me state this outright for all of our listeners. This song is what made me gay. Like you have <laughs> drama in this song and I love it so much because it's a dumb show. It's literally like what Shakespeare would put in all of his plays, haha, of, of like, I'm gonna tell you the story of what's going on here so you can all catch up. And this kind of dance, um, uh, ugh, I don't remember the exact the exact name of it. It's a pod to something. It's a dance that came, was very uh, popular in 1900. Like, it was originated in 1900 Paris. It's like you're watching oh. this man just throw the woman around and it's terrifying, but it's also sexy. And mm -hmm. she's very lightweight and then heavy and he feels the same way. And it's very much like a beautiful ballet of a fight scene. Mm -hmm. And it's so enrapturing. And I think that Kyle, I love what you said. Like this is a different version of love than what we've seen before. Oh, it's great. This is, it's so powerful. It made me gay. <laughs> also, this I will say, watch the choreographer's cut. Go on YouTube oh. and type in Roxanne Moulin Rouge choreographer's cut because he, this choreographer, I will say as much as we've been saying, like it feels like a music video, the choreographer is so, it, the dancing in this is so good and you don't really get a, an appreciation of it because of the way that it's cut and you're like zooming in and whatnot. But I love this Roxanne uh, direct, uh, choreographer's cut because you zoom out and you just see the choreography that's happening without the splicing of like the Duke story and all that stuff. And it's so hot and so beautiful. <laughs> so good. I would say this is the other song that is an example of, in my opinion, way better than the original song. Amen. Amen. Anyway, then well, we Sting, move on Sting, if he's watching, to... I mean, we've dissed him I'm twice. I'm sorry, Sting. I know you're a big fan. <laughs> so the scene that I musical that's, say... that's pretty good. Did he? The Sting musical that was on Broadway. I know that's like sure. definitely not the most popular thing in the world, but I feel like the songs are actually kind of good. Which, wait, which musical was it? My the father's ship? It was like a circle. Oh, the sh ship one. Yeah. What the fuck yeah. is it called? I forget the name. Whatever, you know what it was fine. About. Yeah. So this next scene I love, I think 
personally, this is the scene that I would say earned Nicole Kidman her Best Actress nomination when she finds out that she's dying. And that leads into the song, The Show Must Go On, which I actually, you know, I've known this movie for so long. And then when I watched Bohemian Rhapsody a couple of years ago, when that came out, I did like a deep dive into Queen and their history. And I found out that The Show Must Go On was recorded like three to six months before Freddie Mercury died. And when he recorded that song, he could barely walk. And like the other band members were really worried that he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. And they were like totally unsure about recording it. And then he fucking kills that song, which I think is such a moving story. And it makes the story of the song so much more powerful. And then I love how that relates to this, where it's like she just found out that she was that she's dying. And then it's the same feeling. And I love that. Doesn't everyone get like La Boheme? vibes from the story mm-hmm. like really mm-hmm. hard especially in this kind of a moment I feel like that's it's very like Labo M or, or like Rent or whatever I think this is loosely based of. on Labo M it's, that would there's, make like, sense. there's like three music or three main stories that it's based on the first one is oh I'm gonna butcher this the first one is about like a prostitute who falls in love with somebody who's out of her class the second one is pretty woman Yes, whatever that's based on. The second one is where like the main love interest gets cholera and dies. And the third one is Orpheus, where he oh. goes to the underworld to bring her back. Love yeah. That. And then we got this big Bollywood ending. Which I want to say, the Lotsi of the bodyguard chasing the gun <laughs> around the stage is so funny. It's so good. Especially because he does that thing that Bette Midler does in Gypsy where he tries to like cross off the stage and does that, <laughs> where he does his like little dancing as he, as he waddles And he goes stage. into the like group of musicians that are all bald. Yes, and he, has the, and he has the tambourine. Oh, so funny. <laughs> So funny. <laughs> and then we're back, at this, we're back at this moment where we finally think we've won. Zidler punches the Duke. He leaves. And then the curtain comes down and she fucking dies right there in his arms backstage. They say, hold the curtain. Very sad. Uh, the come what may reprise mm. when... And Christian is walking down the center aisle and then turns around and the song swells and it's like this whole big moment. That that makes me cry. I, it's effective it's, as fuck. It sure is. Uh, God. I wanted to say, I am bothered by something. We were talking about shoehorning in earlier. And I am bothered by the idea that they're like, okay, so we are secret lovers and we are writing a play about secret lovers. And so the secret lovers are gonna have a song that they can sing to each other so that they know. And I'm like, okay guys, have we gone too far? Is this, <laughs> is this too, I'm curious if anybody else picked up on well, that. Well, that happens yeah. in the beginning when it's silly. No, That's before it, no, the turning point. No, so I thought that as well. I thought that as well. However, there's a whole scene where they're like in the studio running around and drinking and he, they act out that entire scene of, of the penniless guitar player walks up to the prostitute and he says, and thank you for curing me of my ridiculous obsession with love. And he walks off the stage and like, oh no, don't leave. And I'm like, wait a second. I watched this again an hour from now. Yeah, they are, but- They that- are shoehorning this in. No, it's when he realizes that that's real. 
it's perfect. <laughs> How dare you? Because she has to make him believe that she doesn't love him. Which is the plot of the story in the story. It's, yeah. it's a real Manifest artificiality. Destiny. It, it's not Manifest Destiny. No, it's a real artificiality, not an artificial reality. It's, it's the whole thing of the us watching a play. <laughs> Kyle, yet again, you've blown my mind. <laughs> I've uh, paid my whore. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, one thing about sort of the end of this movie that always really bugs me is that Christian's room, he's a writer again in big scare quotes, and so his room is just like covered in pages and things are tacked up against the wall and he's just slumped in front of his gorgeous typewriter and I'm just like, you are such a hipster. You should just go yeah. home. And, and he's <laughs> he's grown a beard because a beard is a sign of depression. <laughs> um, it's like, been a year. Man. He didn't really grow much of a beard in a year. It's kind of like, he just <laughs> stopped shaving a week ago. Although I will say, the closing credits for this movie, the music for the closing credits, it's long, but it is beautiful. Ooh. Give it a watch, give it a listen. Stay to the it. end. That's and at great. the very end, at the very end, it has these like, you know, those like old fashioned tattoos of like a heart with like a banner on it. And it has a bunch of these. It says at the very end of the credits, the story is about beauty, freedom, truth, but above all things, love. And it fades out. Yeah, and a special shout out movie. in the credits to um, to Baz Luhrmann's father, um, because as the story goes, his father was very sick, and when Baz Luhrmann was setting out to make this film, uh, he was going to be leaving Australia to shoot the movie, and he talked to his father, and his father was like, "Go, go make the movie." And on the first day of shooting, his father passed away, and so there's a there's a really uh, like a, a layer in there, you know, with Satine being sort of mortally ill that I feel like is extra intense somehow or must have been mm -hmm. deal with in the story. Yeah, Manifest yeah, Destiny. Not Manifest Destiny. It's I don't think I know what Manifest Destiny is. <laughs> uh, it's kind of literally what the words are. Is that not... You manifested your destiny by telling this story, and then it happened. Okay, so that's what the literal words are, but the thing it's referring to is a real thing from American history where oh. the U.S. federal government encouraged people to move west and, you know, attack people who were living on the land in order to take oh. it for themselves. Yeah, it was the call Lover. for Russian expansion. <laughs> Um, you said it. I had to. <laughs> yeah, Sam did. We're here about education here, here at the Thick at Thistle podcast. Uh, yeah, hopefully you'll learn a little something tonight. As you all know, I love book endings. I love a good book ending. And so I love the ending of this musical, how we start with the crazy conductor and then we end mm. on a blackout, except for the crazy conductor who mm. is now not so crazy anymore and it's just like it plays it perfectly and then it like all just dims out and it's it's that it's that moment it gives me that moment in the theater or in the in the in the movie theater that i only usually get on stage theater of like just before curtain the curtain call when like lights go out and you just go oh yeah it's good and then we have the credits and i appreciate that so much in this movie is the word for that catharsis 
Manifest well, catharsis. We know, we know it's not manifest <laughs> destiny. It's catharsis destiny. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode and discussing Moulin Rouge. And can we all just agree that the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Fuck you, Sting. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Sting. <laughs> All right, bye everybody, bye. bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can keep up to date with us by going to thicketandthistle.org. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on your social media app of choice. We are pretty easy to find.